This podcast was produced and recorded in the studios of Cairns FM 89.1. This is The Evolution of Intimacy with Ella Shannon, a show about sex, relationships, and everything in between. You can start to feel bliss while you're vacuuming. I don't know if I've tried that or not. Do I want to try it? What is it? Very complex, very interesting. Flogging, whipping, caning. So there I was in my high heels and my little dress. So it is purely a stigma. Healthy sexual expression with other humans. I went to the local women's health centre and went, I think I'm a lesbian, is there a support group? They don't know quite how to talk about it. It's actually a core skill in relationships. That has always worked for me. This show, we're tackling an issue that holds a lot of worry and concern for many people. While opinions vary on how healthy or not adult consumption of pornography is, when it comes to children, most people suspect that the effects are harmful. My guest today, Giselle Woodley, is a PhD candidate with Edith Cowan University, and she's here to discuss this contentious issue. Welcome, Giselle. Hi, Ella. How are you? Good. So should we be concerned about children and young people viewing pornography? Is it harmful? What are some of your thoughts? Uh, I'm actually quite in the middle about pornography, I suppose. Uh, I should probably say full disclosure because I'm based on an Australian Research Council study that investigates the effect of pornography on teenagers. That prior to being on this study, I was probably veering on the side of porn negative. And I've sort of had to go through my own journey of making sure that I'm unbiased, making sure I'm unbiased to conduct the study. Um, and I've sort of somehow ended up in the middle where I understand there are benefits. It's not so um, linear, I suppose. But there are also, of course, detrimental effects that we have to be wary of. How young are people in Australia seeing porn for the first time or seeking out pornography? Do you know kind of what the stats are on that? Yeah, at the moment, there's mixed statistics. Um, At the moment, the average age for males is about 11 and for females around 15. But that that data, and depending who obtains the data, differs. So there is some research coming out that nine is is around the age that uh, boys in particular are viewing pornography. So this is obviously a fairly concerning statistic. Out of the um, teenagers that I've interviewed, I have had boys admit to watching pornography as early as 10 or 11. And the girls, I think 14 of those that have viewed pornography. Yeah, you know, at that age, there's such a difference in maturity, isn't there, between a 9-year-old and even a 10 or 11-year-old to a 14-year-old. So I guess when we talk about this issue, can they make sense of that, what they're seeing and or not due to their level of development? Yeah, that's absolutely correct. And that actually is um, something that one of the teenagers conveyed to me directly, actually, was sort of saying that although there are obviously restrictions for 18 plus and you can easily just tick a box, their mode of thinking was that it depends on a level of maturity, um, which is an interesting position. I suppose, though, how do you measure that as well? Yeah, that's true. And I know when I was a young 14-year-old, I thought I was very mature. And looking back, maybe I wasn't quite as mature as I thought I was. So, yeah, if that um, comes into it, that's a bit tricky. That's right. You do feel more mature at that age than you probably are, don't you? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. 
<laughs> so what are some of the concerns that are perhaps valid around younger um, teen, teens or even children seeing pornographic content? Well, the research um, is quite varied, but obviously there's um, a lot of concern around emulating what they see in pornography. So there's a body of neuroscience research that's coming out, which is fairly interesting, that showcases that, you know, although the DSM-5, the Diagnostic Manual for Disorders, states that, you know, you can't list pornography as an addiction, it does actually highlight the same areas of the brain that do correspond with addiction and that it is releasing copious amounts of dopamine, serotonin, etc. And then there's obviously a desensitisation process that occurs that essentially means that you need sort of faster, better, stronger material to, to get you there essentially. And that's really concerning on the developing mind, the developing brain and what impacts they have. And really because, you know, pornography wasn't as prolific as it was when we were younger, we don't actually know the full effects of that into adulthood. And a lot of the teenagers I interview are not that concerned. But if I speak to young adults and adults about it, they're obviously really concerned. And it sort of comes down to, are we over worrying something about something that they can actually handle themselves? Or do we have valid concerns that they're not quite aware of the, the implications in future in regards to that? Some of those negative effects also include, there's a large body of research about the lack of prophylactics, so the misuse of or lack of condoms in pornography and the effects on body image perception for both um, for all genders, uh, as well as a, a lack of representation and identity. Uh, so there's some differing uh, negative effects that people are aware of, comparing penis size and uh, the look of vulvas as well is a big one. Yeah. And those insecurities. It would, and especially if, pornography is part of early sexual experiences before having partnered sexual experiences to really realize that it's actually very different in real life and that's just a movie and it doesn't include the conversations or the funny noises or the stopping and getting more lube or all those stuff that happens in real sexual encounters. Absolutely and I think that is a concerning factor is if you haven't any prior knowledge of of sex, like perhaps your parents aren't talking about it, perhaps there's limited information in schools, which is very much the case for some schools, and that's your only source of sexual information, then of course you're going to um, think that that's how it's done. It's a very, it can be a very monkey-see, uh, monkey-do type scenario. What is it that got you into this area of research, Giselle? I used to... Um, do photography and I was doing a story in Bangladesh about how the effects of having no sexual education. This is around 10 years ago now. Because it's an Islamic country, there's absolutely no sexual education. Parents won't talk about it. Teachers won't talk about it. So the only uh, source of information at that time was each other and pornography. And obviously that gives huge scope for misinformation. And I remember thinking, wow, we are so lucky over here because we have the privilege of sex, sex education. But I sort of realised over time that, although that's true to an extent, a lot of our information does still come from pornography, especially for young people. So we're not that different, and um, there is a lot of room for error, I suppose. Has the sex ed in schools gotten better over the years? I was in high school in the 90s, and we got taught about the risks of teen pregnancy and STIs, but really nothing about pleasure or how to enjoy sex in a healthy way. 
from what I've heard, sex ed hasn't really changed that much. So I guess it makes sense that kids would try and fill the gaps in their knowledge by looking at porn. With sexual education today, there's no uh, consistency or mandating of sexual education, so it can really differ from state to state as well as from school to school, and it really depends on, you know, there's no, uh, you know, you can teach maths or art or English and you you need to have a degree or qualification in that, but to teach sexual education, you don't actually need a background in it. And the thing is, it is such an important area, there really does need to be some sort of training, and I think there's a misconception that, yeah, sexual education just involves the, the knowledge of STIs and STDs and contraceptives, but in reality, sexual education also includes relationship education, and it covers a whole scope of issues. So in reality, it should really cover, you know, sort of empathy and building and maintaining boundaries and consent and the breaking down of gender roles. And I have a lot of... We just actually released an article in the conversation and a journal article to accompany it that talked about how the TV show Sexual Education from the UK teaches sex education better than some schools, I suppose. And that's because it breaks, breaks down some of these issues. But we received a lot of flack online not a lot of slack online, actually. There was a lot of support, but we received the... Oh, we were the uh, victim, I suppose, of some anti-feminist, I suppose, individuals. That we, so we were written to some blogs, etc. and their thinking was that abstinence education needs to be taught, and some of these things can be communicated while still teaching abstinence. And as we know from the research, abstinence education simply doesn't work. I don't know if you can remember being a teenager and told not to do something. Exactly. It's like, yeah, oh, that's it re- exactly what I'm going to go out and try now. It must be fun <laughs> if they're telling me I'm not allowed. Yeah. No, no, it's your most rebellious time in your life. I mean, being told not to do something, just it, it just doesn't work. So, um, But I think I've been thinking on this, and I do think that instead of abstinence, we could still talk about the sacredness of sexuality, perhaps, and yeah. sort of respecting your body. And you can still say that in a way that is devoid of religion and just talks about self-respect that meets all those parameters. Yeah, that it can be something okay. special. Um, but I guess that does then privilege that sex has to be, you know, special or long-term, which is a bit of a judgment as well. That This is true. Maybe it's fine for people to go out and have an encounter that feels safe and consensual and pleasurable but isn't necessarily sacred or special. Yeah, this is true, I and mean, we don't want to place judgment on whatever sexual life anyone wants to go on to have, but perhaps there is a middle ground of meeting in all these values and attitudes. So it's a really hard area because people have such strong ideological positions. Yeah, so. that's right. And, you know, with young people, parents, schools, it's very difficult to get anything probably through that's too much about pleasure and enc- could be seen as encouraging young people to go out and be sexual. Absolutely. So what should parents do or people that are working with young people who perhaps they suspect they're accessing some pornography? Is there anything they can do to support those young people to do it in a to use it in a less harmful way? So there's some huge anti-porn uh, movements that are occurring, particularly in America and in Australia. But I think either way, pornography is not going going anywhere. So it's more about adapting to that media and I suppose media can be so powerful in terms of perpetuating a particular message so you know uh, pornography can be very can potentially there are also benefits as well can potentially have a detrimental effect in terms of emulating the behaviors and aggressive nature that is then reenacted in real life in a similar vein you could talk about how for our age group I suppose is that we had Disney movies and 
Disney movies uh, perpetuated this really unrealistic narrative about how there's one person for you or, you know, your one true love is coming. So media can be so powerful in terms of its effect on us. So it's just about, I suppose, being aware of those narratives and uh, creating our own or at least supplementing them with other knowledge. So in terms of pornography for anyone working with young people or parents who want to communicate care to their young children, essentially maintaining an open dialogue so making sure that if they do want to present you with questions, that you are available for that communication and that any, nothing is off limits to ask. Because that's the best way to create a rapport and a sense of vulnerability to have those conversations. The other thing would be self-education. So a lot of parents and um, adults didn't receive that education themselves. Where is the best place for children and young people to receive education and knowledge about sex, do you think? So we do know that the most effective form of sexual education actually is within the family home. But I think it is also really unfair to, to put that on parents as well, given that they didn't receive the sex education themselves. So a lot of it is about self-exploration and education around that. And everyone has sexual shame to a certain degree as well, whether that's from religious ideologies or passed on from our parents. So it's also about working through that so you can have those conversations. So yeah, it's about sort of self-education, maintaining a dialogue um, and making sure that um, you're keeping up with um, sexual information, whether that be through workshops, resources or TV shows like Sexual Education or Big Mouth that use humour to teach these topics. Yeah, humour is a great one because talking to your mum or dad about sex, that's cringeworthy, isn't it? Having to sort of have that conversation for many families. I'm sure there's open dialogue in some, but I think as a teenager, you want to go ask your friends, you want to look something up or find other information and disclose to your parents what you're thinking about, I guess. Yeah, that's very true. I think I was very fortunate to have a very open dialogue with my parents, which is perhaps why I ended up doing sexology. I understand that's not the case for all families. I do still think trying to maintain that openness it can be useful, but obviously for some young people having that dialogue with their peers can sometimes be helpful and so I suppose making sure in, in the community sense that people are maintaining and making sure that they're informed as well. Yeah absolutely and that yeah hopefully more and more schools start to have a wider range of information available for young people about what real sex is like rather than these entertainment pornography videos and and shows that they can access just at the press of a button. What about for littler children that are on devices all the time? They're often better at their parents than, you know, getting around all this technology. Is there risk of children accessing this by accident, looking up certain things and then next minute they're seeing pornography? This is some of what our research actually covers. Part of when uh, young people do see pornography for the first time, a majority of it is because they've either stumbled across it by accident, they've been sent it by a friend, or they've or they've heard about it and they've gone seeking it themselves. That's usually the three ways that I've come across it. And I suppose some of our research, and because we interview parents at the same time when we interview the teenagers and we ask their perspective on it, we do have a lot of uh, parents who use internet filtering software and monitor what their kids do online. And so we sort of supplemented this with the research and uh, that can be really beneficial, I suppose, to a point. So yeah, you're totally right. Young people are able to wield their devices and technology far better than the generations that are before them. 
So we do know that internet filtering and monitoring can be really useful for particularly young children just so they don't stumble across this content by accident. There is a point where it does become harmful. So around sort of the teenage years, it's really, really important that the development they feel a sense of autonomy. And if they're being policed too hard, that can be actually be really detrimental to their development. And it also ceases the ability to have that open dialogue because if you've seen something as a teenager and you know there's the internet filtering system, which isn't a foolproof system as well, they can often not um, access materials that are useful for their studies too. Mm. But it also stops that open dialogue. So if they've seen something distressing, it's far less likely that they're then going to ask their parents about it because they know it's not something they were meant to see. So, yeah, I, I do think uh, those systems have their place in terms of protecting our young people, but I think it's really, really important once they hit those growing coming-of-age years that they do have that sense of autonomy and individualism where they get to grow into their own, and it's just about supplementing that protection with education instead, I think. That's such a good point. And just building trust that you give a little bit more and if the young person comes with questions and uses that in a respectful way, then that trust builds and that open dialogue can be maintained. Absolutely. You are listening to The Evolution of Intimacy with me, Alice Shannon, a show about sex, relationships and everything in between. Most of us have not been encouraged or taught how to talk about sex. They are curious. Hang on a sec, I'm a woman, like, I have needs now. Whole new level of sensation and pleasure. I looked at my yoni before and after and mm. I was like, oh my god. You may experience a range of emotions. What we associate as being related to one gender or another, it changes all the time. Pleasure is our birthright. You're on these massive doses of steroids. I look like Bert Newton. I wouldn't have been attracted to myself. <laughs> so they were just so happy to know that A, they weren't alone, and B, that this was like a legitimate thing. And that actually sounds really lovely and erotic, really pleasurable. It's a secret. Mind blowing. How did the parents that you interviewed respond? I imagine there would have been variations, but were some of them in quite a bit of a panic about the whole idea of their kids seeing porn? Yeah, it's a real mix. I've had some really, uh, we've had some really panicked parents sort of dominates their concerns. And a lot of our research does position pornography as a concern in amongst other online and offline concerns, really. The responses are quite varied and we're still in the process of data collection. We have a real mix where obviously the kids can sometimes run rings around their parents in terms of technology and the parents are on the wiser or quite often the parents say, oh yeah, we can talk about anything and then you find out that the child says, oh no, I couldn't discuss that with my parents. So it's interesting to see the different perspectives, I suppose, as well. What would you like young people to know regarding porn consumption, knowing that it's out there and very easily accessible? I suppose being aware of both the negatives and the positives. So some of the positives can be for gender diverse individuals, it really gives a sense of education and information and acceptance that the schooling system doesn't give. So that can be a really, really useful, really, really useful tool in terms of validating oneself, I suppose. Mm. Would they see people that are a bit like them? Is that what you mean? And that would help to them to validate their identity and just feel like they're not the only one or alone? Yeah, I think so. And I think, depending on the website, there is also a far more diversity in terms of, you know, trans women, trans men, cisgendered men, cisgendered women, 
uh, people of colour, people with disabilities. There's some, I mean, particularly ethical porn sites. There's even more diversity where you know it's a consenting platform. But there is quite a bit of diversity as well that is available that can be really um, affirming, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. And then I suppose in terms of what I communicate to young people is that if you're going to consume porn, is that try to your best of ability to make sure you're consuming it ethically. So quite often that does mean paying for it, but there are a variety of ethical pornography sites that you can obtain for free viewing. And obviously that's really difficult to communicate to teenagers when they're sort of working part-time jobs or, or working off pocket money, I suppose. And then uh, just being really aware that in a lot of the cases it is fantasy and to make sure that when you do engage in real-life situations to make sure that instead of mirroring what you've seen, that you communicate with whoever you're involved in and asking them and exploring with them in what terms of what they like and not deciding what they might like based on something you've seen. Such solid advice. I really wish that, yeah, every young person could get that message and to know that that's okay. Thank you, Giselle, so much for coming on Evolution of Intimacy. No problem. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to The Evolution of Intimacy with Ella Shannon. We're feeling juicy the whole day. Every desire I could possibly think of. What sort of impact would it have? They want it, they're going to go and get it. They don't think of long-term consequences. Oh, did that feel really nice? Oh, yes, that felt really delicious. Being able to feel good about my body again, that's been a huge thing. All anybody really wants in this world is to feel seen and heard. We actually do have a lot that connects us physically. It's making people feel good. There is a real sense of hopefulness that returns in a relationship. A really beautiful thing. Take that beauty and that calmness and that bliss and that sense of peace out into the world. Thank you for listening and I hope we've inspired you with our juicy conversations on this episode of The Evolution of Intimacy. If you would like to go deeper, you can book a session of relationship counselling, sex therapy or individual counselling via my website. I work in person in Cairns, tropical far north Queensland, or I can meet you online anywhere in the world. Or you might prefer to go at your own pace with my 12-lesson Relationship and Intimacy online course. To book or to listen to previous episodes, visit my website, ellashannon.com or follow me on the socials at Evolution of Intimacy. Finally, please go to iTunes and write me a quick review if you're feeling kind. Thank you, lovelies, and see you next time. This podcast was produced and recorded in the studios of Cairns FM 89.1.